This is the Voluntarist Haven Podcast, your weekly source of libertarianism. Welcome back, everyone, to the Voluntarist Haven Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Patrick Newman. Uh, uh, Dr. Newman is a fellow at the Mises Institute and is an assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College and a fellow of its Center for Free Enterprise. Uh, Patrick, if you'd like to introduce yourself, please go ahead. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast, and I'm uh, happy to talk about my my new book, Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America. Yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you on. So uh, to start, um, we're going to start kind of more towards the beginning of the book um, and just kind of move through it. Um, we don't know if we'll make it to the end, um, but just to start, uh, can you give us an overview of what the book is about? Sure. So the book is on the history of cronyism in early America. So what exactly is cronyism? Traditionally, when politicians justify legislation, they always do it in the public interest. Oh, tariffs will protect jobs. Central banking will stabilize the economy, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. In reality, the, the motivations are actually crony. So cronyism is the system where uh, politicians uh, pass laws that benefit special interests at the expense of the public. So basically, politicians are teaming up with other with, with businesses and other groups, et cetera, to enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. So I look at the history of the of these types of laws in the United States, focusing on early America, because this is really the period of time in which we had significant political movements in favor of reducing cronies. In the modern political era, both parties are basically in favor of cronyism in different degrees and in different directions. But back in the day, you actually had uh, several reform movements of libertarians that were not only dedicated to eliminating cronyism, but they actually won office and were able to pass laws. They weren't very success always successful for, what, for reasons I'll, I'll talk about, but that's the general gist. So I explained cronyism using this theory of liberty versus power, which Murray Rothbard had articulated, that basically uh, history is a clash between the forces of small government and the forces of big government. And when the forces of big government have control of the, uh, of the state, cronyism goes up. When the forces of small government have control of the state, cronyism goes down. Empirically, though, cronyism only really moderately declines when libertarians were in control of the government. And this is because power corrupts. This is the other tenet of the liberty versus power theory. Reformers, they win office, then they start to move on. Oh, we want to now appeal, you know, expand our coalition. We got to look ahead to the next election, so on and so forth. So basically, that's what my, what my book does. It goes through the, the history of all sorts of special privileges and leaves sto no stone left unturned. So at the beginning, when America were obviously part of the British Empire and referred to as the colonies, what they would call British mercantilism was the old order. So can you describe for us what exactly that entails and what that means? Sure. So the old order was really this combination of uh, mercantilism, absolutism and feudalism. So mercantilism is the system very similar to cronyism. Uh, it's just when the, the, the government uh, enriches uh, favored business interests and in other groups. Uh, with various uh, policies that restrict trade and production. It views exchange as a zero-sum game. So countries, they're, they're not trying to work together. They're just trying to benefit themselves at the expense of other countries, or so their logic goes. Feudalism is when the king basically strengthens his support among his, his henchmen by parceling out uh, his conquered territory, gives it out in the form of land grants, etc., ties the lords and the peasants to the land, so on and so forth. And absolutism is the theory that, that the king is divine. His words are, you know, they come from God, so to speak, etc. And this type of system really ruled Europe in the 1400s, 1500s, and 1600s. In the European nation states, England, France, and Spain in particular, when they started to settle in the New World, they really intended their colonies to be extensions of their empire. So England, later Britain, basically wanted its colonies to be these raw export markets that would basically you know, export various raw materials, crops, lumber, etc., to Britain. At artificially low prices, Britain would use it to make manufacturing goods, which it would use for themselves or sell to the colonies at high prices. 
So ironically, uh, America was, was really not, in a profound sense, really not conceived in liberty. It was really conceived in power. It only just happened that the colonists were able to invade, uh, basically, excuse me, evade the uh, English government's various depredations. Uh, so the American Revolution has often been described as a libertarian revolution among libertarian circles. Uh, do you agree with that description? Yes, absolutely. I, I think the American Revolution is a great example of this battle between liberty and power. Many American revolutionaries, they thought of it like that back in the day. And of course, I, um, I, I argue that's correct. Murray Rothbard did as well. So you, you have to think of it when we think of the American Revolution it really is a secession. So the American colonies, they've decided to, they're saying, well, we're not going to pay the British Empire's recently imposed or recently enforced taxes and regulations. This is part of the British Empire's grand design after the French and Indian War. In the American colonies, through the Declaration of Independence in 1776, they basically decide we're going to secede. We want to break away. So there were many conflicts between the, 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 the revolutionaries, whether or not they just wanted a small government or their own American big government, at, at least initially the forces of liberty won. And so the secession, it was libertarian. We had a relatively decentralized government at the end. And it's, it's a highly important event that I think gets criticized or downplayed in modern history. And that's very unfortunate. So figures such as Tom Woods, they've pointed out before that the American revolutionaries critically differ from the French revolutionaries, and due to this ideological stance, one was successful while the other collapsed into anarchy and chaos. What do you think of the ideological differences between the French and the Americans? Yeah, so that's a great question, because the French Revolution basically happened about, you know, 10, 10 years later, so to speak, and the... The, the, the French revolutionaries, they were influenced by, Amer by the American revolutionaries. One of the many beneficial acts or, or con excuse me, consequences of the American Revolution was it led to similar revolts in Europe. They weren't really successful, but it still at least led to people resisting their governments. The French Revolution was founded in the same ideas of liberty, but it quickly took a turn for the worse. This was due to many factors. Rothbard sort of explains this a little bit in the fourth volume of Conceived in Liberty. He argues that basically uh, mercantilism and uh, feudalism and even absolutism, they were just too entrenched in the French economy for there to be enough of a majority movement in favor of liberty. And the other issue was that France, when it was undergoing its own revolution, it was also fighting uh, other countries that, you know, other, other European governments that were trying to stop the French Revolution. And this, uh, all of these factors basically caused it to take a turn for the worse. In America, you saw this happen in many, uh, at many points. I mean, we engaged in an enormous amount of government intervention during the American Revolution, printing money, price controls, confiscation of supplies, et cetera. These had a lot of economic consequences, but our institutions were a little bit more durable and we were insulated from the rest of Europe, which allowed us to sort of persevere in the overall libertarian thrust of the revolution. In France, you didn't see this. And even though many American libertarians, especially those with the, the recently reformed uh, Republican Party of Thomas Jefferson in the 1790s, were sympathetic uh, to the French. It, it, it really, it, it did. It did not turn out to be a, the success story many people hoped it would be. Uh, so during the war, the French played a large role in assisting the American revolutionaries to win the war in exchange for future assistance. And Jefferson emphasized the promise, while Hamilton argued against assisting the new revolutionary nation. Was this decision not to assist the French with the correct judgment? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we shouldn't have uh, assisted the, uh, the the French. You know, you should not engage in various um, interventions. I do talk about this in my book that, you know, Jefferson's policy, you know, was supportive of the French. The exaggeration of how much or at least how much he wanted to intervene or assist them has been exaggerated, I think, by recent musicals like Hamilton, et cetera. The overall in the 1790s, the Republicans were much more non-interventionist than the, the Federalists, and the Republicans were much more hesitant to go to war as opposed to the Federalists. In the late 1790s, during the Quasi-War, when we were involved in various shipping 
skirmishes with the French. Hamilton uh, really wanted to go to war with France. He wanted us to declare outright war because this would then allow us to invade French Louisiana and even South America. So in the end, I think Hamilton comes across as much more bellicose than Jefferson does during this time period. So in your book, you describe the U.S. Constitution as a triumph of power, but I think among libertarian circles especially, this will be really controversial because most see it as like a very libertarian document. So could you elaborate on why you think it's a triumph of power over liberty? Sure. So this is, this, this is a controversial uh, position. I do take the position of Murray Rothbard. I actually think my position is, is not as different as what some people believe, at least, uh, or at least what, 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 some, what some people would argue. So in the 1780s, when you look at the Constitutional Convention and the ratification of the Constitution, it's, it's very clear, if not undeniable, uh, of, you know, the, the, the cer that certain things are occurring. One, the forces of big, the, the, the proponents of big government in the past and in the present decided to create an entirely new government structure that they would allow, that, that, that would allow them to pass for various privileges. And they did intend for various vague clauses, necessary and proper, general welfare, all of this stuff, uh, to be a very expansive. Now, when they argued it in front of the people or to the proponents of limited government at the time, they were known as the anti-federalists, they would sometimes use very highfalutin rhetoric. Uh, they would say, oh, no, it's going to be limited, et cetera. Uh, that was really just sort of a, a you know, broken promises. It, it was a lie. In the 1790s, uh, Hamilton was able to use the Constitution to really pass all sorts of policies that increased the, 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 the power of the government as well as the special privileges it was dispensing. The st strict constructionist view of the, of, of the Constitution, the position that someone like a Ron Paul would have or many libertarians today, arguing that, no, the Constitution prohibits us from doing these things, X, Y, and Z, uh, so on and so forth. That actually came from the people who were fighting the Constitution in the 1780s. So the people fighting the Constitution, the anti-federalists, they realized after they lost, after the Constitution was ratified and the new government was in existence, they had to go back to the drawing board. They knew they couldn't get rid of the government, so instead they're just going to basically argue as if the new government is what they want. And so this is what anti-federalists started to do in the 1790s. Thomas Jefferson, who wasn't uh, in America during the ratification debates, he also starts to interpret the Constitution strictly. The limited government version of the Constitution, you know, interpretation of the Constitution, excuse me, it really, it really starts to begin with the 1798 Virginia and Kentucky, Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, <coughs> excuse me, by Jefferson and Madison. And so this is where you get that limited government document. Okay, it's not in 1787, it's in 1798. Uh, so one of the most prominent cabinet uh, battles between Hamilton and Jefferson was on the assumption of states' debts. What would be the libertarian solution to such an issue? So that's a great question. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, we printed a bunch of money to pay for things, and we also issued debt certificates. So it's like almost like a bond that we would pay to soldiers <clears throat> or merchants, uh, et cetera, for various war supplies. So the Continental Congress, and then later the Confederation Congress did this, as well as various states. So these newly created states, um, you know, Virginia, Massachusetts, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. So at the end of the war, the paper money more or less depreciated out of existence. Now, states issued new paper money in the 1780s, but that's a separate story. The debt instruments really were not allowed to depreciate and so some people basically, they, they decided, to, various speculators, they decided to buy up these securities at highly depreciated rates from the merchants and the farmers and the soldiers, et cetera. And they pushed at the state and federal level to have the governments assume them at par. So you're buying a, 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 basically a bond at a very low price, and you're hoping that the government will buy it from you at a very high price using taxpayer money. So that's very crony. So in the 1780s, many people had argued that the solution was just to repudiate the debt or at least default on the debt. So to, to, to just downsize it by not paying for it. And they argue that saying, well, most of the debt was not even in the hands of the original holders, the soldiers, the merchants, et cetera. It was in the hands of various speculators who were taking a risk, a risk that this could not pay off. 
And so this was the this was the solution practiced by Virginia and some other southern states, with the exception of South Carolina, to just lower taxes and cut government spending by not paying off the debt and saying, well, sorry, um, it's not a private contract, you know, in the sense contract based off of taxes. So we have a right to basically void it. And Hamilton and, and various businessmen he was connected with, such as Robert Morris, who owned a lot of the securities, obviously didn't like that. Hamilton wanted to have the new constitution, the constitutional government, assume all those securities at par, the state debts. And that was very controversial. The solution, which was kind of advocated by Jefferson and others, was to really repudiate or not assume them and allow states to handle them on their own. Instead, Hamilton chose the path of basically bailing out security speculators and giving them an enormous windfall profit. I want to say about like $60 million, which at the time was astronomical. One of the most important things that arose during this time was the compact theory, the, the theory that states weren't part of one unitary union, but rather they were there were states in a mutually inviting agreement. So what do you think of the compact theory and how it ideologically shifted the old Republicans? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm a... I'm a fan of the compact theory on, with the understanding. I mean, it is a it's a strategic interpretation of the Constitution. The Constitution was not actually, you know, created in a compact. The Federalists were very clear about this. That's why the Constitution wasn't ratified by the state legislatures. It was ratified in special state conventions uh, as a way of sort of moving around the legislatures. And it technically didn't even require unanimity to get through. They only required, I think, nine out of 13 of the states. But it's still a, a good way of fighting the government because it really gave birth to the ideas of nullification and secession, the idea that we're going to try to return to the federalism as originally advocated, advocated and articulated, which is that there's going to be a balance of power between the federal government and the states. The, the big government federalists, they perverted it and they said, oh, well, there's going to be a balance of power among the federal government, the executive, the legislative, judiciary. They're all just going to engage in, you know, the checks and balances protecting each other. But of course, there's nothing stopping all those branches from working together to screw the states and the people. But the combat theory it's in the 1798 Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, uh, really the Kentucky resolutions, very important theory. It, it's something that influenced a lot of Americans in the future, including later Jeffersonians as well as Jacksonians. And it's something that's, uh, I think, useful for today for modern libertarians uh, to uh, uh, advocate. So you brought up nullification. That's probably one of the most important things today for modern day libertarianism, nullification secession. There's been recent talks about Texas and Florida secession. So do you think the nullification strategy still has importance for libertarianism today? Oh, absolutely. I think the nullification strategy in a, in a sense was, you know, it's it's been used, if you think over the past 10 years regarding drug legalization, marijuana, states basically quietly nullified the federal government's a drug war. And the federal government has more or less acquiesced in this, which has led to a slow deregula deregulation of and legalization of marijuana. Has it been perfect. There's been cronyism involved at the state level, but it's still better than the uh, the previous status quo of you know outright prohibition. You also have seen this more recently regarding mask mandates, vaccine requirements, et cetera, and, and so on, where various states have implementing their own rules. And there's sort of been a very almost like a patchwork of regulatory laws. Some states are stricter. Some states aren't as strict and so on. You know, many states have, have, have resisted various mandates and orders by the Biden administration, et cetera, at least as best they could. So even though they're not using the rhetoric of nullification because it's very extreme rhetoric, in many ways they are informally practicing it. But I think the rhetoric as well as just the further application of it is still important today. Secession is becoming increasingly more and more common, at least the idea of secession. We've seen it through Brexit, um, through the Catalonia, uh, you know, uh, problems of a couple of years ago through Kurdistan a couple of years ago and so on. And uh, I, I support it. I think that's those are really the best ways at reform. You're not going to reform Washington, D.C. The only thing you can do is to just try and break away from it. 
So due to corrupt special interests and bribery, Hamilton seized the opportunity to establish the BUS in Philadelphia and justified the proposal through his 1790 report on the National Bank. Uh, How did this proposal exacerbate centralization and cronyism? Yeah, so this was really one of the major crony policies because it established this private monopoly bank that uh, had the ability to establish a branch in, 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 in the various states and it would hold all the federal government's money. So it was a deeply worrisome institution. Hamilton wanted it because he wanted to strengthen federal power, particularly in the, nor- in the North and especially in Philadelphia, which was then the current capital. So the, the Bank of the United States was definitely one of the most crony policies passed. It's actually unfortunate that the only reason it really passed was because Washington decided not to veto it if the Federalists allowed him to move the designated site of the, of, the, of the nation's future capital, what was Washington, D.C., right, uh, in, on the Potomac River, which had uh, emerged from the, uh, the debt assumption compromise of a year earlier, Washington wanted to move the capital a little bit closer to his own land in Alexandria. So in order for him to do that, the Federalists said, okay, we'll let you do that. We'll let you amend what was known as the Residence Act, but you got to sign our bill. You can't veto the bank bill. So the actual process of, of chartering the, the, the bill had emerged through cronyism, and its effects were very crony. Uh, one of the first consequences of the bank was it created a boom-bust business cycle uh, that ended in the Panic of 1797. So, and um, what, using the Federalists and liberal constructionism, essentially they were able to implement internal improvements that benefited financial interests, such as canals and other things like this. Can you describe a few examples of how they use cronyism in order to implement internal improvements? Yeah, so, well, <clears throat> the in subject of internal improvements, they did try and push for it in the 1790s. Hamilton uh, had tried to, he, he had New Jersey create a, uh, a chartered corporation, the Society for Establishing Useful Manufacturers. He actually suffered a, a political defeat in that he wasn't able to get Congress to uh, give it direct subsidies. But the Federalists in the 1790s were still able to use the Constitution to secure crony privileges, or at least to strengthen crony privileges, through the contract clause of the Constitution, which at the time was did not really have its the protection of private property that we now associate with it, but it was designed to protect land grants that state legislatures had given out and that they didn't want future state uh, legislatures to revoke it. And so Federalists were able to use this through, uh, most notably through the Yazoo land scandal. And this was something where a bunch of land was basically sold to speculators in Georgia at absolutely bargain rates. And the Georgia legislature uh, tried to rescind these grants, but it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where at the time, Chief Justice John Marshall, whose brother had married the daughter of one of the largest land speculators in the country, and John Marshall himself was an enormous land speculator, surprisingly ruled in favor of the land speculators. Uh, So due to the Alien and Sedition Acts, Jefferson and Madison introduced the Virginia and the Kentucky Resolutions in 1798. Why were these resolutions important for an ideological turn against the Federalists? They were important because they really articulated the strict constructionist view of the Constitution I had mentioned earlier, and they also sort of articulated a version of the compact theory. So it really just kind of gave the resistance um, something that they can rally behind. Now, <clears throat> interestingly enough, they weren't actually that important for the next two years, particularly through the Revolution of 1800, where Jefferson drove out, uh, prevented John Adams from getting reelection, but they still were important as an overall just creating that theoretical apparatus for how to resist government actions. In particular, as I mentioned earlier, nullification and at least potentially secession. So after the election of 1800, uh, Jefferson was known for his radical moderation. Um, and to do this, he uh, kept some Federalists in his cabinet, including in the judiciary, where he kept Marshall, who you brought up earlier. Can you explain maybe the impacts of Marshall and how he implemented the judiciary? Yeah, sure. So at the end of the um, Adams administration, early 1801, so you got to imagine back then the presidents weren't inaugurated in January, they were inaugurated in March. 
at the end of uh, at the end of his presidency in early 1801, the Federalists realized they lost. They realized that Jefferson or maybe Aaron Burr, but at least one Republican was becoming president. They realized they had lost control of Congress. So they decided to strengthen their control of the judiciary. All right. The Supreme Court strengthening their control of the Supreme Court in the lower courts uh, where they appointed a bunch of what were known as midnight judges, et cetera. And most famously, John Marshall became chief justice Supreme Court. So what Marshall wanted to do at the beginning of the Jefferson era was to use this idea of judicial review so that the Supreme Court could decide on the constitutionality of various laws to protect the Federalist cronyism and to prevent the Republicans from destroying, from basically weakening it. So say they wanted to protect, um, use judiciary review to maybe judicial review, excuse me, to prevent the Republicans from maybe repealing the Bank of the United States as they were afraid they were. The Federalists were, were fearful the Republicans were. And uh, the, the concept of judicial review was basically first articulated in a landmark court case, Marbury, Marbury versus Madison. And this was something that a lot of um, Republicans, the hardcore Republicans were afraid of. They themselves wanted to repeal not only the 1801 Judiciary Act, but also the 1789 Judiciary Act, which established the Supreme Court and the whole system of, of lower courts. Uh, they succeeded in removing the Judiciary Act of 1801, but they didn't get the uh, 1789 Act. And this is sort of the beginning of Jefferson's moderation. So not going as far as many of his radical supporters wanted or what they were promised by Jefferson, but instead settling for a middle of the road uh, solution. Uh, so while the Jefferson administration was able to cut internal taxes, they were also prone to moderation. Uh, could you just elaborate on the financial moderation of the Jefferson administration? Yeah, sure. So in the 1790s, Jefferson's favorite hobby horse basically was attacking the Bank of the United States for saying that it led to corruption. It uh, was it caused all sorts of economically uh, destructive, you know, uh, booms and busts, et cetera. It uh, led to, you know, an increase in the partnership between governments and businesses and so on. But when he became president, he was influenced by his otherwise fairly libertarian secretary of the treasury, Albert Gallatin, to keep the bank. And Jefferson realized that he could use the bank for his own ends. Maybe the bank could lend money to the government when it needed to, and so on and so forth. So Jefferson didn't get rid of the bank. He only continued to privatize the institution by selling the government stock in it. And so the really the battle for uh, bank deregulation uh, continued on at the state level, where, where Republicans tried to fight Federalist charters for banks and so on. But the big thing was the Bank of the United States was not eliminated, and more importantly, its constitutionality was not challenged, which allowed future central banks to be created. So I think it was in 1803 the Louisiana Purchase took place. Could you just explain what the Louisiana Purchase is and how it exacerbated cronyism? Yeah, sure. So back in the day, Louisiana referred not just to the state of Louisiana where New Orleans is, but this entire swath of what was once once uh, French territory that had passed hands a couple times and most recently in the Jefferson administration was in the hands of France. Spain had uh, decided to give it back to France. And so this was an enormous amount of land, right? Extending as far west as like what might be modern day North and South Dakota, all the way to Louisiana. It, you know, it was a huge increase in the size of the government. So Jefferson originally wanted to get it, the land. Napoleon was selling it for a bargain, $15 million. But he knew it was unconstitutional, at least from his strict constructionist perspective. So he kind of was tormented with whether or not, you know, whether or not to uh, pass an amendment beforehand, et cetera. Ultimately, he decided to just have the government ratify, uh, you know, excuse me, uh, ex you know, ratify the treaty. And that would be that. Uh, the issue, though, is that once you do that, then the whole strict constructionist approach just falls to the ground because then Jefferson started to support other uh, increases in government power. And, you know, th this led to many former supporters of the Louisiana Purchase, such as John Randolph, calling it an enormous curse because now Jefferson was supporting all sorts of internal improvements, you know, roads and canals to bind the large government together, increasing government spending and so on. And this basically was obviously a huge issue. So the Louisiana Purchase 
opened up the veritable Pandora's box, if you will, uh, for uh, increasing government intervention, particularly by President Jefferson and his Republican Party. Uh, could you explain the economic effects of Jefferson's trade blockades with France and Britain? Yeah, they were basically, um, they weren't good. Um, they, it was similar. It was like the, it was like the, 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 it was the contemporary version of the lockdown, which Jefferson and the Republicans, they were trying to engage in a trade embargo. So they said, well, in order to make Britain and France stop harassing us, particularly Britain, because they were very anti-British, they said, well, we're just going to stop trading with them, importing, exporting goods on American ships. And, you know, that will show them. And it didn't really affect Britain and France so much. They were more concerned with their own war, but it really just totally decimated the American economy because so much of the American economy was dependent on foreign trade. And this was a, this, this led to um, unemployed workers uh, in port cities. It led to uh, problems in the countryside, et cetera. It led to the government basically uh, enlisting or raising troops to suppress uh, people from trying to peacefully trade with Canada, uh, you know, et cetera. And it was really a disaster. So the first Jefferson administration, other things equal, you know, I'll give it an A. The Louisiana Purchase was a problem, but its, its effects didn't really occur until later. But the second Jefferson administration was just a total disaster. The Embargo Act um, of, of 1807 was really the most notable and it just it just showed you how much power had corrupted Jefferson. So during, after presidency uh, of Jefferson, he had Madison next in line, which would, took place through the War of 1812 uh, for Canada and Florida. So how exactly did this execute cronyism and what were the effects of this war? <clears throat> yeah, so the War of 1812, the, the real motivation I explained is the United States wanted to conquer Canada. Back in the day, Canada really just referred to the land uh, above New York and around the Great Lakes wasn't like the massive country it is today. But anyway, they wanted to Jefferson and Madison wanted to bring it into the American empire for a variety of various reasons. And there were politicians looking to benefit from this as well. And so at the War of 1812, you really see all the Republican Party embrace all of the former Federalist policies it had previously criticized. They, they chartered another central bank. They passed protective tariffs. They then at least started to make plans for an extensive system of internal improvements, uh, so on and so forth. So it led to uh, a lot of cronyism, special privileges, particularly by banking interests, which were able to use the war as an excuse to suspend specie payments, and also uh, several leading bankers, most notably John Jacob Astor and Stephen Girard, uh, these large mercantile in mercantile interests, they got Congress to pass an even larger uh, central bank than the one before. And uh, Gerard and Astor, they had bought a bunch of government debt during the war, and they pushed for a central bank because they wanted uh, their stock in the bank to be able to be purchased with government debt, thereby increasing the price of their security. So again, the motivation was crony, and the consequences of this bank were also very crony. Um, so now we're coming up on the Panic of 1819. We all know how important it is, uh, yet it's pretty underrepresented, even or unrepresented even in American history. Uh, what were the key factors and players that led to the Americans' first monetary depression? Well, it was really the Second Bank of the United States was expanding credit tremendously when it opened up, and it was doing this to try and help banks return to specie payments. The issue, though, is that all this was doing was just leading to specie being drained from the Second Bank of the United States. So when the Second Bank of the United States realizes this in late 1818, they engage in massive contraction, right? And then this leads to this bust. So in the previous two years, you saw this boom in all sorts of investments in things like steamships and turnpikes and uh, uh, buildings and, and land speculation, slaves, et cetera. And then after the panic of 1819, it was this massive crash. And what this panic really did is it, one, fractured the ability of the new national Republicans from imposing their American system on the economy. It also led to a resurgence in hard money thought. So a lot of people realized they said, hey, wait a second, uh, government intervention, central banking isn't working. We need to get rid of this institution. Uh, notable individuals who were influenced by the panic of 1819 to take an anti-central bank 
pro gold standard stance were guys like Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, uh, so on and so forth. As you just mentioned, there was a big shift in ideology towards like the hard market or the hard money crowds. Um, this was because of the Panic of 1819 and as well because of Say's work, which was published in textbooks and things during the 1820s. So could you expand a little bit on how this sort of how Say's work influenced the economics of his time? Yeah, absolutely. So Say's work and Jacinta Tracy, they were both very anti-bank. Uh, they were anti-government uh, partnerships with bank, and they had basically argued that the solution would be private competitive banks or uh, and or full reserve banking, so no fractional reserve banking. And this, they became very, uh, Say's book in particular became, uh, was, was widely used in, in colleges as a textbook at the time. And so this obviously influenced various people. Now, many Americans uh, had read Say's work, uh, Thomas Jefferson read Say's work, many other people, uh, you know, notable politicians had done so as well. Uh, there was this famous uh, anti-bank and free trade economist uh, who was a former, um, he, was, he was from Britain, but he had moved to South Carolina. His name was Thomas Cooper. So it started to, you started to see this crystallization of ideolo ideology at the time where you saw, you know, these, these hardcore works, they were being distilled to the public in various forms. And so Say's influence, much like Adam Smith, influenced the American, uh, the, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson and other people uh, in the 1790s. Say's work did the same thing in the 1820s and 1830s. So during what you call the era of corruption, there was a large corruption by the SBUs. Can you give a few examples of this? Yeah, sure. So the Second Bank of the United States, it basically... Um, what it would do is it would make loans to newspapers and politicians, and in return, those newspapers and politicians would support the Bank of the United, the Second Bank of the United States in Congress. So many politicians, notably Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, were on the payroll of the bank. So when they're justifying its constitutionality, when they're justifying uh, its benefits, they were also getting paid by the bank, which is a clear example of a conflict of interest because you're seeing basically politicians working with a business organization to enrich themselves. A big issue that people had with this second bank of the United States was that it was given a monopoly. It was Congress said, we're, this is the only bank we will charter for 20 years, right? Which would lead to monopoly profits. And the fact that the politicians that were defending the bank were receiving loans from the institution uh, is a huge problem. So on the note of Webster and Clay, they were affiliated with what we call the Boston Associates. Can you give some examples of how they would lobby and influence government policy? Yeah, sure. So the Boston Associates were a group of merchants who were moving into manufacturing during, uh, you know, in, in New England near um, obviously Boston. Uh, one of the most notable associates was Abbott Lawrence, who is a, a large textile manufacturer. And so what they were able to do is they would basically uh, send, I call them their stool pigeon in Congress, Daniel Webster, to lobby for uh, protective tariffs that would benefit their interests. One of their most notable provisions was to engage, it was to pass something known as a minimum valuation uh, for woolen, uh, for, for cloth and wool, cotton and wool and textiles. So the idea behind this was that uh, very cheap products from abroad would be assessed, uh, that the tariff rate on them would be assessed as if their price was a lot higher. So like a 30% tariff would turn into a 100% tariff, basically. It was designed to be very regressive. So it would raise tariff rates on the cheapest products abroad. And this would benefit their interest the most. Of course, who would hurt from this would be your average consumer uh, who was buying these cheap tech, you know, these cheap clothes, clothes from abroad that would now have to pay significantly higher rates uh, in order to do so. So from David Ricardo onwards, there was a large shift towards the free trade movement. Can you elaborate on the history of the conflict between free trade advocates and the protectionists? Yeah, sure. So this is something that's really been a huge part in American history. Guys such as Adam Smith, then David Ricardo, John Baptiste Say had argued in favor of free trade. They were most, in America, they were supported the most by yeah, either the, the South, um, due to its plantation system, it was mainly, they were mainly exporters. They'd export cotton and other goods abroad. So Southerners supported free trade because one, that means they could buy cheap 
manufactured goods from abroad, but also people uh, would buy more of their goods from abroad because they were richer. <laughs> a additional uh, a proponent of free trade were the mercantile uh, regions in the country, notably New York City, which at the time uh, was becoming the largest importer in the, in the country. So naturally, you know, it supported free trade because it, it was importing a lot of goods. The protectionists, on the other hand, were, you know, were they, these were these uh, manufacturers and <clears throat> other interests that supported high rates on foreign competition, basically to protect themselves from outside, uh, uh, you know, a competition. So guys such as the, the, Jet, the, the, uh, the Jacksonians were in favor of free trade, while the Whigs, led by guys such as Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, were in favor of increased protection. So one of the vital politicians during these sort of times was John Randolph, one of the old Republicans. Can you elaborate a little bit on his contributions throughout American history? <coughs> yeah, sure. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, nursing, nursing a cough. Um, <clears throat> John Randolph, hardcore old Republican. He was a distant cousin of Thomas Jefferson. He basically had, was, was criticizing Thomas Jefferson's move to moderation led to a nasty split between them. He had fought the Republicans moving towards war in the War of 1812. This had cost him a lot of political capital. And he was one of the foremost fighters of the Second Bank of the United States when it was being chartered in 1816, as well as the overall American system of Henry Clay in the 1820s. Uh, I was actually on a podcast uh, very recently this week talking about John Randolph, enormously significant figure. I would argue he is, I would say he's one of my favorite, if not my most favorite congressman. I'd probably say he's my most favorite congressman of all time. He was just a, an old school libertarian who, you know, called the spade a spade. Uh, he was not uh, going to back down. He fought for what he believed in. It cost him a lot of political capital, but he thought he was doing the right thing, which is something that I heartily support. Senator Van Buren fell into the same, <clears throat> uh, the same traps of moderation as Jefferson did. What are some prime examples of this? So <clears throat> while he was uh, a senator in the 1820s, Van Buren was, uh, was a senator from New York, right? <clears throat> and so on the one hand, New York was one of those swing states that was torn between protection and free trade. New York City was very free trade, but upstate New York had some manufacturing interests or farmers who were in favor of protection. So Van Buren in the 1820s on significant uh, tariff legislation sort of straddled. Um, <clears throat> he would one time fight for uh, free trade by not voting on a bill. Other times he would support a tariff in the tariffs of 1824. In 1828, he ended up supporting those tariffs, right? And this led to a lot of problems because it raised uh, the prices of goods um, significantly. When he was president, he was much more free trade, but his moderation had led to uh, increased fury by uh, South Carolina, which was protesting the high tariff rates. Clay was very fond of the old Hamiltonian empire, particularly monetary centralization and internal improvements. Could you give some examples of how Clay influenced these sort of protectionist and cronyist policies? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> Clay... Uh, <laughs> Is the, the, the statesman, the politician he admired the most was Napoleon. So you already kind of should know like his, his, um, his perspective from that. But he wanted a tariff to protect Northern manufacturers at the expense of the South and the West. And then this tariff <clears throat> would raise revenue that could be used to support a system of internal improvements, okay? So Clay was uh, indispensable in sponsoring the 1824 tariff as well as the 1824 uh, survey bill, which basically laid out this government blueprint, uh, this blueprint for a federal a system of internal improvements across the country. So Clay was very protective you know, of his American system. And this was, you can imagine the American system was like the great reset of the, of the 1820s. When modern historians talk about the American Revolution and related issues, they tend to assert that it's that policy was advised only on protecting slavery and, um, and issues related to slavery rather than on their political their political basis. Do you have any comments on what the effects that could be by historic history? I think it's very unfortunate. American historians have increasingly argued that 
significant events in history were influenced um, you know, entirely by slavery or that was the overriding objective. Um, that's a distortion. The American Revolution was not influenced by slavery. Slavery really didn't become, it, there was flare-ups about the issue during the Constitutional Convention or during the, the Missouri crisis of 1819. It really didn't become a national issue until the 1840s with the, uh, with, with the annexation of Texas. And in particular, it was the spread of slavery into the West. People got upset about your average American did not want to free the slaves in the South <coughs> because uh, that would then lead to uh, like this uh, integrated society. But they did not want slaves to leave the South, which had led to various, quote, anti-slavery movements to prevent the spread of slavery in the West. You could say it had the, you know, it was the wrong motivation, but at least it was sort of the, the right idea. The slavery issue, though, was significant in breaking up the Jacksonian coalition, though, in the 1840s. But it was not this overriding issue that had controlled every aspect of American politics uh, since the Revolutionary War. Where slavery did control the issues of the day state back in Madison's era over the War of 1812, when he wants to acquire Florida to stop fugitive slaves from Georgia, I believe. Get my geography right. Um, modern historians don't really emphasize it as much. And I find that really questionable because we were at a political issue where things based on protective tariffs and the internal improvements and the rest of the libertarian cause are ignored. But when it really does come down to that core issue of slavery and foreign policy and imperialism and militarism, they don't emphasize the real causes as much. Yeah, and that because that's because I think the whole slavery issue is really just a Trojan horse for more government intervention. So people who are always eager to bring up the slavery issue are always eager, eager to bring it up in connection with politicians fighting for small government. So their argument is that, oh, many Southerners brought up the slavery issue by saying, well, if Congress has the power to build roads, they also have the power to free the slaves. That was really a slavery scare argument that many, you know, the proponents didn't actually sincerely believe. They were just trying to whip up support for their measures. And more importantly, many Southerners at the time had argued that actually, no, uh, you know, they were big, many Southerners were big government in favor of intervention. And they said, yeah, the Constitution protects slavery. There's no problem here at all. So this idea that, you know, whenever slavery, there's like a pro-slavery element uh, in American history that's also big government, it's always dismissed. You know, one of the most uh, obvious examples of this is that the head of the Second Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle, uh, was also a noted advocate of American expansion and was against the abolitionists. So he was very influential <coughs> in getting uh, the United States to annex Texas. The slavery issue was obviously very controversial, and I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, recently there was a statue of Thomas Jefferson taken down because of the fact that he was a slaveholder. So do you have any thoughts or opinions on the, the sort of removal of, of statues that uh, because they were slaveholders or supported slavery back in the day? Yeah, I, I'm against it. Yeah, if you want to do something of that nature, you should just build new statues. But this idea that, oh, we're going to take down statues of various people because they did something that we consider now ethically wrong is very problematic. It shows just the general ignorance of American history. And it's just very uh, poor judgment because we're demonizing people. Yeah, they were flawed, but they also did a lot of good things. So we shouldn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. So when we're increasingly demonizing guys like uh, Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, it's really just leading to or just rewriting history so we can feel better about it, which is never a recipe for success. In Tom Woods' book, A Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, he talks a little bit about the Three-Fifths Clause, I believe it's called. Um, and he's, he talks about how people wrongly interpret it to mean that slaves are, are um, the sort of minorities in the community at the time were only three-fifths of a human rather than three-fifths of a vote. Or do you have any comments on that? Well, I mean, the, the Three-Fifths Clause is very important uh, with the uh, creation of the Constitution because it was a huge issue over representation. In the South... A lot of people blame the South for the three-fifths clause. Actually, the South wanted five-fifths. They wanted slaves to count as each as one slave to count as one person because that would increase their influence in the House of Representatives. 
uh, the North wanted lower. So the North really was responsible for the, the three-fifths clause because the North did not want slaves to count as property. So instead, there was a compromise. Um, it initially, it, the, the three-fifths clause had become more and more uh, it, at least problematic in that it, it boosted the representation of, of Southerners in Congress, which uh, prevented, which which strengthened the ability of Southerners to resist legislation that was that was uh, getting rid of slavery. Though what happened was the South's greatest strength in this regard uh, was in the Senate, uh, due to the equality of each state getting two senators. But you know the Three Fifths Clause very important for the creation of the constitution and it was um obviously we i would argue crony one thing that became particularly clear to me while reading your book was uh that american history for a large part depends on a very particular conflict between the the north and the south which obviously culminated the, the civil war with lincoln but um can you talk a little bit about the conflicts between the, the, the south and the north particularly between like the, the west and the north alliance or um the protective tariffs because the south obviously was more predicated on exports whereas uh, the north was more predicated on uh, importing and the sort of protective tariffs that benefited manufacturers more and geographical locations within america to, rather than uh, as america in a whole so yeah as a side you're asking about the civil war in particular or just overall just like the geographical differences just overall, with, because I think that yeah. most of it really tends to depend on a conflict between the South and the North. Yeah, so the, the North was in favor of uh, protective tariffs. The North was, um, they were less involved in the exporting or, Im or importing business, um, or at least the extent that those regions that were the mercantile centers were in favor of free trade. Southerners, it was <coughs> a plantation-based economy. And it, uh, they were involved in a lot of exporting. The West, so they were in favor of free trade. The West was kind of the, 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 uh, the, the, the swing area because we would expect the Southwest to be more like the South and the Northwest to be more like the North. And so initially you actually saw that the, uh, the, 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 the West, um, at least during the Jacksonian era, sided with the North excuse me, not with the North, with the South. And this is how we are able to lower tariffs because um, we were only able to lower tariffs through the 1846 Walker tariff through a quasi-informal uh, you know, agreement with Great Britain that they were going to repeal their, uh, their corn laws, which they did in, um, in about 18, uh, 1846, so like a couple months before we did it. And once that they repealed their import, you know, tariffs on the import of American wheat, there were a lot of Midwestern farmers uh, who then became in favor of free trade. And so there were enough senators to pass the legislation. So when free trade succeeded, you saw an alliance with the South and the West. Uh, when protection succeeded, you succeeded, succeeded, you saw an alliance with the, the Midwest and the North. So just to get back to where we were before in the point of history, we were about John Quincy Adams' presidency. And one thing that appeared again was Florida, um, where he tried to amplify tensions because he believed that uh, either Mexico, Colombia, somewhere in the surrounding area might move in to take Florida's their own territory. Can you comment a little bit on John Quincy Adams' presidency, the Florida acquisition? Yeah, so when uh, John Quincy Adams was uh, Secretary of State under the Monroe administration, um, <clears throat> he had signed a, a treaty known as the Adams Onus Treaty, providing for the annexation of Florida. And this is one to provide another further stepping stone to get what Adams really wanted, which was Cuba, a longstanding desire of the United States that we still have not apparently satiated. And so in doing so, this treaty uh, not only annexed Florida, but it also coincidentally bailed out the Boston Associates, of whom guys like Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and John Quincy Adams were associated with, because it assumed a bunch of shippers' claims uh, on Spanish seizures of their good. This is normally like a marketplace risk. And instead, the federal government assumes uh, those claims, and it, it, it gave out a couple million uh, to the Boston Associates, right? And so this was all linked in. John Quincy Adams he was a noted expansionist in the 1820s, and Florida was, uh, you know, uh, high on his list. 
So by the time the Jacksonians came around, particularly in what, I think 1824, 1828, um, what happened with the election was that John Quincy Adams was, uh, there was a corrupt bargain, as you call it. And this is what led Van Buren to reconsider his alliance with Republicans and create the Democratic Party. So can you comment a little bit on the history behind that? Yeah, so um, John John Quincy Adams uh, was there was basically a a, a, a multiple person race in the during the election of eighteen twenty four. You had uh, Andrew Jackson, John Calhoun, Henry Clay, William Crawford, um, and in the election, Andrew Jackson won a plurality of the electoral college in the popular vote. But uh, the election had to go into overtime. Henry Clay was eliminated from the overtime rules. But as Speaker of the House, um, in the overtime race, he could at least decide the winner. So he decided to team up with Adams, basically telling Adams, hey, if you make me meet, if you make me, I'll make you president if you make me secretary of state. Back then, being secretary of state basically meant you're going to be president sometime in the future. So this was like, hey, I'll make you president if you make me president. So they both they worked together to deny Andrew Jackson the, the victory. And Andrew Jackson's obviously furious. He realizes that there's an intense amount of corruption. He decides to team up with Van Buren, who was interested in reviving the old Republican um, coalition. And they create this new Democratic Party that was very libertarian. It was anti-central bank. It was anti-protective uh, tariffs. It was anti-internal improvements. It was basically uh, anti-American uh, system. And so in 1828, Andrew Jackson triumphantly wins. He denies John Quincy Adams re-election. And this ushers in the Jacksonian era and really the birth of the Democratic Party. So one of the vital factors about Jackson, and personally, I'm still not, I, I still don't really know how I feel about the Jacksonian strategy. I know you had a podcast episode talking about it with uh, Phil Bishop mm -hmm. uh, long ago. I loved the episode, by the way. Um, I personally, uh, I, I don't know what I think about the whole vetoing powers and that sort of strategy. But one thing that he did do was uh, reform the executive and place powers within the government uh, that he benefited from more closely. So can you describe how the Jacksonian strategy went along? and the executive and judiciary? Yeah, so it, it admittedly is very controversial, Andrew Jackson. Basically, the Jacksonians realized that they said, look, we're not going to achieve reform through Congress. We've been doing this for 30 years. It hasn't worked. Congress is too corrupt. So let's try to go through it with the executive, particularly by having a president veto <coughs> legislation, rotating out uh, various uh, support, you know, um, uh, you know, cabinet officials, et cetera. And so this is how we'll be able to fight the American system, how we'll be able to reduce cronyism and so on. It did work. It was effective. The issue, though, is that you're also increasing the power of the president. So it's a double-edged sword, right? There are strengths and there are weaknesses. I, I full-heartedly you know, admit that. So it's a quite ingenious strategy. The issue that it's, it's that you're kind of playing with fire. So Andrew Jackson vetoed a lot of bills. Some of these were great vetoes. Uh, vetoing the early recharter, the, the early recharter uh, of the Second Bank of the United States, vetoing uh, various internal improvement legislation, et cetera. But at the same time, this made the president very powerful. It increased his influence in legislative affairs. And this is when you start to see the rise of the modern executive, you know, the executive branch, which has this outsized influence in the legislative process. So Andrew Jackson, um, <clears throat> There were strengths and weaknesses to his approach. Just to bring the conversation back a little bit to modern applications, I know Phil Bishop is very fond of the comparison with Andrew Jackson and Trump using executive legislation and the veto. Uh, could you comment a little bit about the Trump strategy and how it relates to the Andrew Jacksons? Yeah, so... Um, We've spoken about this. I would always tell him this. I would say Andrew Jackson, in many ways, is very similar with, with Donald Trump. And this is no surprise. One, Donald Trump would constantly rotate people out in his cabinets, right? People leaving left and right. This was one designed to um, sow confusion as well as to uh, try to drain the swamp, so to speak. Andrew Jackson did a very similar thing back then. Uh, Andrew Jackson also used the veto a lot. Donald Trump didn't really have to veto, you know, uh, nowhere near, uh, in, in, at least in the same uh, depth or breadth. I'm not even sure how many vetoes he, he did, uh, if, if at all, and how many of them were really significant. But he certainly did try to uh, increase the power of the executive as a way of reforming 
uh, or trying to combat Congress's power. Again, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you're trying to get rid of, you know, you're trying to fight um, corruption, but in doing so, you're increasing the power of the executive. And this is, it's, it's, it's very controversial. So um, I, now, unfortunately, I, uh, Andrew, uh, excuse me, uh, Donald Trump did not win re-election, I guess, so we couldn't see how this policy would continue to unfold. It took really eight years of Andrew Jackson for this to, uh, for, for his, the veto um, doctrine to really become uh, solidified, but you still see enough of it. You know, will it have a lasting effect on modern American politics? I'm not sure. It really depends on the future and so on. So far, unfortunately, I guess I would say Andrew, ja I mean, uh, Donald Trump's uh, career has ended more like Martin Van Buren's and not Andrew Jackson. But time will tell. We'll see. Um, I don't think whatever happens with Trump, it's not necessarily an indictment or praise of Andrew Jackson, but there certainly are a lot of similarities there. Now, one part of the Jacksonian strategy, I think Jackson's mainly known for two things. First, his veto against the Second Bank of the United States, and second, the removal of the Indians. So um, in the war against the central bank, which I personally find the most interesting part of the Jacksonian presidency as a free banker, um, could you just talk a little bit about the history between it and what were the key figures and players that happened when Jackson vetoed the charter against the Second Bank of the United States? Yeah, so the Second Bank of the United States, very important battle. This was the bank war. Andrew Jackson had decided to veto the early recharter. He had sided with his advisors, um, uh, um, uh, Amos Kendall, uh, Martin Van Buren, uh, William Gouge, um, and uh, you know some various other free market, hard money, Jacksonian reformers. On the other hand, you had guys such as Henry Clay, Nicholas Biddle, Daniel Webster, they were quite uh, obviously protective of the bank. Henry Clay wanted to win the presidency in 1832. So he, he encourages Nicholas Biddle to basically push for an early recharter of the bank. The idea was that if Jackson vetoed it, he would lose the election. And if Jackson didn't veto it, he would look very weak in front of the public and still lose the election. So Henry Clay thought eh, it's a win-win. Um, but what happened was uh, the plan backfired because Jackson vetoed the bill, but Henry Clay uh, did not win the election. So one issue as well involving banking that went on multiple presidencies from Jackson to Van Buren to Polk to the rest of them was the separation of bank and state, as you call it. Could you comment a little bit on the struggle to separate banking interests from the government? Sure. So this was a problem that after the banking recharter uh, had been denied, what exactly were you going to do? And this was something that Andrew Jackson basically initially decided to keep the government's money in pet banks, which reduced the problem of corruption, but it really just spread it out to other institutions. Eventually, the Jacksonian solution was to adopt an old plan, first argued by guys such as Thomas Jefferson and John Randolph, to have an independent treasury. The government would keep all of its own money outside of vaults of banks and hold it in specie in that this would be uh, the correct way to sort of separate the government from the banking system. So it took a long time for this to be passed, uh, especially because Van Buren lost re-election in 1840. And, and so then the, the Whigs were able to subsequently repeal the independent treasury, but James Knox uh, Polk was able to reestablish it in 1846. I think one thing that may be important to talk about is the solution, I guess, to the separation of bank and state. And I know, um, I believe you are a free banker anyways. Um, yeah. I've watched your lecture on it for the Mises Institute. Kind of fantastic. It was a great way to introduce people to the free banking literature. Um, so I guess, could you just talk a little bit about uh, how the libertarian or the free banking solution would be applied instead of the full reserve 100% system? Yeah, it was just you really just have privately competing banks and due to the adverse clearing mechanism, if one bank expands too much credit too fast or really tries to engage in credit expansion um, without an increase in reserves, other banks will uh, call, um, call, call um, in uh, you know, the, 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 the expanding bank's notes and deposits, which will lead to an outflow of reserves. And this will significantly check credit expansion. This was argued by... Um, uh, the, uh, you know, advocated by Jacksonians such as William Leggett and William Cullen Bryant. And this was influential in the overall Jacksonian struggle. Um, 
I hate to interrupt. I, I have to actually run. I was I didn't know how long this would this this would last for. Um, do you have like a one last question or anything to uh, sort of you know uh, finish it up with? I guess we should finish it up on the most important part, which is how the Jacksonian Revolution failed in your eyes. Yeah, and this was un- this was the the expansion the expansion of the American Empire um, through the annexation of Texas and through the Mexican War. Basically, with the annexation of Texas, Martin Van Buren didn't want to annex Texas. Jackson increasingly supported it. So Jackson split with Van Buren, um, and this this led to Van Buren being denied the 1844 um, uh, presidential nomination by the Democrats. So James Polk became uh, the nominee, and he became president. And he's still a Jacksonian on economic matters, lowering tariffs, supporting hard money, uh, et cetera. But he pushed for this war of conquest through uh, the Mexican War, which led to us conquering California in the Southwest, increased government debt, reestablished the corrupt partnership between banks and the government, led to the creation or the promotion of transcontinental internal improvements. And it really just sort of weakened the whole Jacksonian um, uh, libertarian thrust. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time here. We, I personally love the interview. I thought the book was great. If you have the chance, please go out and buy Cronyism. It was one of my favorite books that I have read in forever. Um, and Patrick Newman's views on history are very, very enjoyable. And you can actually read them, <laughs> which is quite unlike economists. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, the interview was great. I'll send you the link as soon as it's published. And uh, thank you. Hey, we uh, we loved having you on, and maybe sometime down the road we can do something else. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. And, yeah, let me know when it's out. You can send the link, and I'll promote it on social media and stuff. And so, yeah, thanks for having me on.